I hope that's encouraging to you. I invite you to turn to Ezekiel 16. We're not going to read it just yet, but let me encourage you to, to turn there. As I watch that video, um, I'm reminded how blessed just personally <clears throat> I am by the orphan care ministry at Bethany Community Church and the Bethany Fellowship of Churches. And apart from that ministry, how different my life just personally would be. And I believe the same thing is, is true for our life as a church. Apart from the orphan care ministry, apart from the faithfulness of families and individuals and singles and older folks and younger folks and everybody all together to, to care about the orphan, our church would not be the church it is today. I don't believe that our church would understand the character of God in the same way that, that we do apart from the orphan care ministry. So I'm very grateful for it. Very grateful for the gospel and the, the gospel's influence in our church's life and the application of the gospel in the orphan care ministry. I want us to, to watch a video together, another video here, a, a testimony of a family. And, and you probably, maybe many of you have seen this before. And, and as we watch this video, I want you to look at the video through the eyes of our North American culture. So not just through the eyes of a believer. But how does this family and its makeup and its, the things it's passionate about, how does this look to our culture? My favorite quote of all time was our furnace repair man comes into the house, stops dead in his tracks, and says, this looks like some kind of United Nations meeting. Bangalore, India. Connecticut. And I was born in Romania. Ethiopia. Which is in Africa. In China. <laughs> Sharon is the gas pedal, and I am the brakes. Over and over she'll say, I found this child who needs X and Y and Z, and all we'd have to do is fly over the ocean, get funding, connect the dot to here, and it'd be done. We're such victims of our culture because our culture tells us your kids have to look perfect and be in all the perfect schools, and you can't do that with a big family, but if you just concentrate on what's important, the rest will follow. People discouraged us. They thought we were gonna ruin our lives by taking all these special kids, and they said, you don't know what to do. And it's true that we had no experience and we didn't really know how to raise them, but you, you see what happens with unconditional love. You give a person unconditional love and they, they blossom. I feel like having these kids has really helped us find our life, find our meaning, find our purpose.
It took me decades to figure this out, but there's no physical thing that you can buy that's actually gonna give you true peace and happiness. And the pure joy that will come from a, a rescue and a ransom of a child's life is probably the most satisfying thing you can imagine. We talk about adoption, we tell them they're adopted and we kind of tell them, you know, being born into a family, you don't even decide that, it kind of happens biologically, but when you're adopted, your parents looked out at the whole world and picked you. You think that they don't really know the gravity of them being rescued or saved. Then you'll see them in an external setting, like one of them is in front of 300 people last Friday night, and he tells people that he probably wouldn't be alive if he hadn't been adopted by his family. Those are the, like the goosebump moments when you go, he's got it. at the time when I was born, um, when, you were, when you were born with a, a deformity, quote, quote, it, um, it was considered a curse by God. I was um, kind of distanced and not treated right and kind of not really getting any care that a normal baby should, which is why when I was one and a half years old, I weighed nine pounds. It was rough in the, in the first year of my life, but I lived. But no matter where you were before, it's like where you can be now, your past doesn't define that. This family has proven that. It's just like you have a dying boy from Romania or starving kids from Africa, and you bring them to a, a place where they can be, I guess, human to the fullest, and that, that's, that's a generous generous thing. Family is everything. Family's fun. <laughs> Interesting. Because <laughs> family is just people you can be a fool around and they'll still love you. Awesome. No, should I do the Dennehy face? Family is something that I can count on. Family is adoption.
Father, we thank you for adoption. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to come to it and to learn about you, your character, to emulate it as believers to worship you. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to be the children of God you've called us to be. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to look at Ezekiel 16 in just a moment, but, but let me say a few things first. I, I hope that as you view that video, you see the contrast that exists between the way that the Denehys view children and the way that our culture views children. You and I live in the culture, the Western world, the North American cultural context that doesn't value children the way that I believe God calls us to value children. If more people viewed children the way the Denehys viewed children, we'd see more families that look like their families. Not saying that every family that values children would need to look like that, but I, I believe that would be more commonplace than extraordinary. It would be more commonplace to see people do extraordinary things in the lives of children if we viewed children the way that God views children. I hope you caught something, uh, Sharon, the mom said as the video began. She said, as she talks about their work among orphans, she said, people discouraged us. Isn't that interesting? As they decided to pursue this path of obedience to God, she says, people discouraged us. They thought we were going to ruin our lives by taking all of these special kids. And they said, you don't know what to do. And it's true, we had no experience. We didn't really know how to raise them. But you see what happens with unconditional love. You give a person unconditional love, and they blossom. I'm sure if you were to ask Sharon some more questions about her family and about the difficulties they, they've gone through, and there'd be some dark times that she was, would be able to tell you about. I'm, I'm, I'm confident. You don't capture the enormity of a ministry like orphan care ministry in a six-minute video. There's very dark times that a person that pursues this path of obedience must go through. But what's striking to me is that expression. People said to us that we would ruin our lives. Now, why would a person think that if you pursue this path, you would ruin your life? And I would suggest to you that a person thinks that way because they are a part of an idolatrous culture. You and I are part of an idolatrous culture. Even though you and I might say that, that we're God worshipers, that we want to be those who worship the one true God, you and I are part of this North American cultural context, and it's a, a culture of idolatry. It's a culture of self-love and self-worship. And the idea that you would spend your life in, in pursuit of sacrificial care of others is a foreign idea to many of us. And even though we would say we're God worshipers, you and I, as, as part of this culture, have bought into many of the lies of this culture. And perhaps you and I would, would maybe not consciously say this, but would subconsciously think, yeah, that is not a, a very 
profitable way to spend one's life as you look at the story of the Denehes. We're about to read some words from Ezekiel 16 that are shocking. There's some rough language in Ezekiel 16. I'm probably not going to read the most shocking parts of Ezekiel 16. And even what I am reading, I'm a little uncomfortable reading because the language is is so rough. And the reason I believe God uses the words that he uses here and the images that he uses here to communicate to this people is because the people that he's speaking to were unaware of the danger that they were in. They were unaware, unaware of the depth of depravity of the culture around them. And they might acknowledge, yeah, we haven't worshipped God the way that we're supposed to, but I believe that Ezekiel uses the words that he uses here because he was talking to a culture that hadn't even begun to grasp the depths to which they had sunk into idolatry, self-worship, failure to worship the one true God. And I believe the same is true for you and for me. So we're going to read this passage that deals with some, some tough things about worship and what idolatry ultimately is. And my goal for this morning as we, we come to, to the end of our time together this morning, what, what I hope happens, what, what I hope happens every Sanctity of Life Sunday, really every Sunday, is that we're in, we encounter the meaning of what, what it really looks like to worship the one true God, that we would commit our, ourselves to worship of, of Yahweh God, the one true God, and that God would do extraordinary things in our church as a result of us being a church full of God worshipers. That stories like that story would not be all that out of the ordinary. But we would see extraordinary acts of worship on a regular basis. I believe the central idea that we grasp here in Ezekiel 16, the portion that we're looking at particularly, is that God worshipers care for God's children. God worshipers care for God's children. I'm going to read the text here. I'm I'm reminded a little bit, uh, I was at Living Hope a few years ago, Living Hope Community Church, and I was getting ready to preach, and I first got up and I I just read the text that I was going to preach from, it was from Song of Solomon, and I sat down, and Pastor Art was there, and he looked over at me and goes, where are you going with this? (laughs) I hadn't said anything about the text. The mere reading of God's word alone made Pastor Art uncomfortable. Uh, So there's there's some tough things here, okay, and hopefully you see where we're going as we continue to look at this passage together, this passage that confronts a culture that was steeped in self-worship and idolatry, and it affected their view and treatment of children. Ezekiel 16, I'm going to begin in verse 15. God says to Jerusalem, to his people, comparing them to a, a woman, but you trusted in your beauty, and played the whore because of your renown, and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. 
you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children? And deliver them up as an offering by fire to them. And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Tough words. Graphic language. To describe a people who were not worshiping God in the way that he had called them to worship him. I want us to look at three characteristics of a God worshiper in these verses. And as we look at each of these characteristics, what what I hope you see is how a, a God worshiper cares for God's children. Number one, number one, the first characteristic that we see in verses 15 through 17, even into verse 19 through verse 19. Number one, a God worshiper lives to glorify God. A God worshiper lives to glorify God. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel 15, you see that Ezekiel draws out this this parable of a a useless vine, and he says, basically, Jerusalem, you're like a useless vine, and and what can you do with a vine? Not much. You can't build anything out of it. All you can do is is burn it, and and once you burn it, what can you do with what's left? Nothing, okay? Uh, Jerusalem, that's you. Worthless. And Jerusalem, you know, the, the people who are with Ezekiel, and by the way, they've, they're people who have been carried into captivity. They've been removed by God's divine hand out of the land in which they were living into exile. They're experiencing God's judgment as Ezekiel prophesies to them, and they still don't get it. They still don't understand the depth of their own sin. And so Ezekiel 15 comes, and he says, hey, basically, guys, you, you guys are useless. And they're like, hmm, interesting story, Ezekiel. And you get the sense they still don't grasp the depth of their problem. And so Ezekiel comes, and we see Ezekiel 16. Graphic language used to describe the way in which they've failed to worship God as he's been called to, worship, to be worshipped. A few years ago, I was uh, in the car and I was listening to the radio and a song came on that, that really struck me. It was a song that uh, I hadn't heard before. I don't think it was very popular at the time. It, uh, it was kind of like a, the style was like this a 60s song or something. And um, it, it was sung by a young lady named Amy Winehouse, and it was called Rehab. And uh, so it sounded like it was from the 60s, but the language was kind of shocking. And it described this this uh, situation in which a person was, uh, was abusing alcohol or drugs or something, and people around this person were trying to get them to go to rehab, and the chorus says, but I said, no, no, no. Okay, and I thought, what, what, weird, what a weird song. And I kind of researched, and I found out that the, the lyrics were autobiographical. Uh, this young woman 
was a, as a person who was, was struggling with addictions, and people were trying to, to get her to, to go into to rehab and to get some help, and she kept saying, no, no, no. And as you know, uh, perhaps uh, Amy Winehouse, the singer of that song and the writer of that song, passed away last year from alcohol poisoning. People around a person who have, a, a person who has decided to pursue a very dangerous path, a self-destructive path, People around them have to say hard things. If you have a friend who's, who's decided to pursue a path of, of alcohol abuse or some sort of uh, drug abuse, you, you don't just come alongside them and say, hey, that's, that's an interesting decision. Are, are you sure? As you see a person, as you see a friend pursuing a path of disobedience and a path that's going to lead to their destruction, you come alongside them, and at times you say difficult, harsh seemingly harsh things because you love them and because you care for them. The people of Israel and the people of Judah had pursued a path of idolatry. And this image that, that God uses in Ezekiel 16, and there, there's more to it, and we're not going to get to all of it this morning, of course, but this, this image that God uses is designed to say, look, You've decided to not worship me as I've called you to worship me, and you're in great danger because of it. And the type of idolatry that they were participating in was, was often sexual in nature. And the way in which you worship the gods that the Israelites had gone after involved just, just terrible practices, great and gross immorality. And so God uses this imagery here. We see it in verses 15 through 19 we see God describing their practice of the, these false religions in, in sexual terms. It's like a, a prostitute, he says. I, I'm supposed to be your God, and instead you're worshiping all these other gods, and you're engaging in a sexual immorality, and the things that I, I've given to you, the things that I've given to you to be, to be used in, in worship of me and in, in relationship with me, you've taken those things and you've distorted them and you've, you've twisted them. For example, he says the garments, the clothes, on them you've, you've engaged in prostitution. It's, it's, it's obscene. This gold and silver that I, I've given you, you, you've made images, verse 17. My oil, my incense, verse 18, you've used to engage in this false worship. The bread that I gave you, you've set before them. I, I gave you all this fine flour and oil and honey. All these things I've given you, I've provided for you. Instead of using them to, to, in relationship with me, to worship me, you've used them to engage in, in harlotry. Deuteronomy 6.5, we encounter the, the great commandment. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. That was the standard of worship that God had set for his people. The greatest commandment in the Old Testament wasn't to observe the Sabbath. The, the greatest commandment wasn't about murder. The greatest commandment wasn't about uh, you know, giving. The greatest commandment was to love God. And as we encounter the people of Israel in Ezekiel 16, they have failed to love God. A God worshiper is defined by their love of God, and they live a life to bring glory to God. Now, how does this relate to the sanctity of life issue? 
what we need to understand as those who would call ourselves pro-life is that we're dealing with a conflict of values. And I believe that one of the things that we need to do as we engage our culture with the issue of of the sanctity of, of human life is we need to listen to what our culture is saying and see to see this issue from the, through the eyes of those with whom we disagree. Let me read you a couple quotes from, from those who would call themselves pro-abortion. Virginia Ramey Mollencott said this. And I want you to listen to what she says and, and see if you can ascertain what value she is espousing here. What, what is her value? When I was in high school, and a little aside here, when I was in high school, I was in a, a debate class. And we practiced a Lincoln-Douglas debate. And what you do in Lincoln-Douglas debate is, is uh, you, you pick a, a resolution. There's some sort of re- resolution like resolved. Um, everybody should get candy or something like that. And you either say, I agree with that or disagree with that. And as you agree with that or disagree with that, you pick some value. So, you know, my value is fun. And that's achieved by everyone having candy. And, and someone else says, well, my value is uh, good teeth, and uh, that doesn't happen as you eat lots of candy or something like that. And so, you know, may- maybe the value is justice, or the value is, is mercy, or the value is whatever. And whatever your value is, you make a case, and you say, well, because this is my value, this is how that value will be achieved in this situation. My kids are, are really good at, at, at debate. Um, so, for example, I might tell them, hey, guys, uh, go to bed. And I'm saying, my value is for you to get a good night's sleep. And I have one of my sons, well, he, he knows how to play me. He'll say, well, Dad, I just thought maybe as a family we could snuggle on the couch and watch TV. Dad, my, my value is the family. You know? I just love us. You know, anytime my kid says we're snuggle and couch, they, they know they have me right where they want me. You know? All right, your value is superior, son. We'll go sit on the couch and watch TV or read a book or something. Listen to what Virginia says and see if you can see what value it is that she holds. What's, what's the value that she believes is supreme here and the value for which a society should be striving? She says, how is a married woman able to plan schooling or commit herself to a career or vocation as long as her life is continually open to the disruption of unplanned pregnancies? Unless, of course, she can fall back on an abortion when all else has failed. Now, for those of us who are pro-life, you know, there's the knee-jerk reaction. Let me argue with this. Let me listen again. As long as her life is continually open to disruption of unplanned pregnancies. What's the value there? What value does she hold? And, and what value does she believe that our society should hold? Think, think about it. Here's another quote from a Lawrence Tribe. Lawrence Tribe writes, Laws restricting abortion so dramatically shape the lives of women and only of women that their denial of equality hardly needs detailed elaboration. You hear that? Laws regarding abortion only affect women, according to Lawrence Tribe. And it, it's a denial of equality. While men retain the right to autonomy, restrictions on abortion deny that autonomy to that autonomy to women. Laws restricting access to abortion place a real and substantial burden on women's ability to participate in society as equals. 
What's the value there? What I believe you see in, in, in those words by, by uh, Miss Melancott and, and Mr. Tribe there, what you see there is a value placed on autonomy, on self-actualization, on, on, on freedom. And you and I, in small and, and in large ways, have bought into a culture that, that holds the autonomy of the individual as the ultimate value. There's a, a thought experiment that uh, a pro-abortion person one time put forward, and basically the thought experiment goes, imagine that you were abducted by a group of people who were fans of this famous violinist, and this famous violinist was dying, and these people abducted you, and they, the only way to save this violinist was to hook you up to him and to be able to be, use your, your blood, and so they hooked you up to him, and the only way for him to survive was to remain hooked up to you for nine months. Would you have a moral obligation to remain hooked up to him? And, and her answer is, well, of course not. Of course not. It's you know, a very famous thought experiment. I think the believer says, well, yeah, I would feel a moral obligation, no matter the circumstances in which I found myself there. And, and here's why. Here's why. It's because it's about competing values. The value of our Western world, our North American culture, the value is freedom and the autonomy of the individual, the, the ability of the individual to pursue whatever ends he or she desires to pursue. And what we as believers must acknowledge, I think, those of us who are pro-life must acknowledge, yes, we do ask difficult things from individuals. And, and there is a damage to freedom that sometimes takes place as we pursue a higher value. And that value is the value of worshiping God. Israel was surrounded by people who were engaged in idolatrous practices, and so they failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their strength. What I believe God has called you and I to do is to be God worshipers in our culture. Not just in the area of sanctity of life, but in all areas of our life, and to show the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as, as Lord and participating in his sufferings. And until you and I, as God worshipers, live the lives that God has called us to live and glorifying him, we are not going to be able to point people to the surpassing beauty of knowing God. In other words, as we talk about competing values of our culture, we're going to see the value of materialism and the value of autonomy and the value of freedom. And what you and I must do is to live in such a way that we say all these values are of not compared with the surpassing value of knowing God and being able to live a life that brings honor and glory to him. A God worshiper lives to glorify God. Secondly, a God worshiper knows that children ultimately belong to God. Look down at the text again with me if you would. Remember, there's been a kind of a progression here. He said, look, you've taken all these things that I've given you and you've, you've used them for worship of these false gods. You, you've, and there, there's a heightened here uh, kind of a, a heightened uh, attention to the things that they've taken from God that he's given to them and used them in an inappropriate way. And it, it culminates here in verses 20 and 21. He says, and you took your sons and your daughters whom you born to me 
and these you sacrificed, he says. You sacrificed to these false gods to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? He's describing here the worship to the god Moloch and some other gods that involved children being sacrificed to them, being, being burned. And we see examples of this in Scripture. He says, was your engagement in this, this idolatry not enough that you even carried it to the point of taking my children, the children you'd born to me, and, and, and abusing them as well? The person who believes in the sanctity of life and the person who's a God worshiper believes that that God has a unique claim on the lives of children. We see it throughout Scripture. We see that that God has unique interest in children and their lives and, and calls them His in a unique way. For example, in Matthew 18, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, who's the greatest? And Jesus calls a child and He says, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, disciples, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 5 of Matthew 18, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He'd go on and, and say, do not despise one of these little ones. This is Matthew 18, verse 10. I, I tell you, that in, hev- in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In verse 14, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. As you and I live in an idolatrous culture, we live in a culture that doesn't see the value, the intrinsic value in God's children and doesn't acknowledge that these children are not ultimately our own but belong to Yahweh God. In fact, I believe, and I believe Scripture attests to this, that the inevitable result of a culture who turns its back on God and begins to pursue lifestyles that God has not called them to pursue, the inevitable result is a devaluing of the lives of children. Over and over again, we see that the enemy works to deceive people concerning the value of children. And as a culture turns away from worship of God and turns away from those things that God calls them to do, a culture inevitably engages in abuse of children. We see it through the worship of false gods over and over again. The enemy deceives this culture into believing that that sacrificing children will pursue, will will achieve the greater good of of a culture. Pharaoh murders the innocents. Herod murders the innocents. The Canaanite kings murder the innocents as they pursue what they believe is best for themselves. The God worshiper knows that children ultimately belong to the Lord. They're his, and you and I have been called to live in obedience to that As Dr. Russell Moore says, evangelical theology can clarify a pro-life vision by explaining the ancient cosmic roots of the abortion debate. The murder of innocent human life is seen as evil in Scripture spanning thousands of years of redemptive history. What does this mean for you and me? Well, 
a God worshiper knows that children ultimately belong to God. And as a God, as a God worshiper comes to that realization, a God worshiper says, well, first of all, I, I understand, therefore, that I have the responsibility, number one, to provide for children physically. As a God worshiper, I acknowledge that I have a responsibility before God to provide physically for his children. And so my refusal to meet the physical needs of children is a refusal to meet the physical needs of God's kids. That's a pretty dangerous position to take. You and I have the responsibility as we see the physical needs of children to meet those physical needs. As a God worshiper, I acknowledge that I have the responsibility to meet the emotional needs of children. You say, well, I don't have children in my home. Well, you have children here in this church. You have, you have children that God has brought in your life in other areas. You have, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, you have a responsibility before God to care for, emotionally for his children. A child who comes into Bethany Community Church should feel loved and welcomed and cared for emotionally. And as a God worshiper, of course, you and I acknowledge that we have the responsibility to provide spiritually for the care of God's children. And so as a child comes into our church, we say, I recognize that I have the responsibility to help meet the spiritual needs of that child, to help them understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the beauty of knowing God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. A, a God worshiper says, as, as a child is brought into my home, I understand that I have the responsibility not to communicate legalism to this child, not to communicate lawlessness to this child, but to bring this child into my home and proclaim to them the reality of sin, that, that they're sinners, that I'm a sinner, the reality of the gospel, the good news that, that God offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, that I need and that they need. A God worshiper a God worshiper understands that children ultimately belong to God. Then thirdly, we see that a God worshiper remembers God's compassion. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 Ezekiel says, And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. So what in the world is he talking about there? It's very graphic. Look back at the, the beginning of chapter 16. We see the beginning of this story of this one whom God rescued. Verse 3, Ezekiel is said to say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. In the ancient Near East, infanticide was not unknown. 
a person who had a child that they did not wish to care for. Perhaps it was a, a girl and they didn't want a girl or they had some sort of physical deformity and they didn't want to care for this. They could abandon the child and say, I have no legal obligation to provide for the care of this one. And that's what happens in this, in this story that God is telling of Jerusalem's origins. He says, you were abandoned. You had no one to care for you. No one said that they had any sort of legal obligation to provide for you or care for you. You were left in your blood. No one did any of the things that a midwife would do for a child that was loved and welcomed in the world. The umbilical cord isn't cut. They're not washed. They're not bathed. They're not cared for. No one shows compassion. And then this what happens. You were cast out on the open field. You were hated. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. Verse 6, but I passed by you. And saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you, in your blood live. I made you flourish like a plant in the field, and you grew up became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. What do we see there? We see the care of God for one who had been abandoned. And brothers and sisters, that is the state of each of us before God adopts us into his family. A God worshiper is one who has known abandonment, who has recognized that they were alienated from God due to their sins and trapped in darkness, and has come to light by repenting of their sins and placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving rescue by God's adoptive hand. A God worshiper remembers God's compassion. And now, here in Ezekiel 16, shockingly, Israel forgets the compassion of God and engages in abominations and mistreats God's children, failing to show the same compassion they had received from God. I hope you see the obvious application for us. God has adopted you and I. We are the, the children of God, as was sung in the song this morning. And as those who have received God's compassion, we remember God's compassion. And it's not some sort of debt-based work ethic. Well, I need to pay God back. He, he adopted me. I need to care for the fatherless. As God worshipers, we are continually mindful of God's compassion to us, and it compels us to deeper worship. And as we're compelled to deeper worship, it causes us to be more excited about caring for those who are in need. For those who need God's compassion like you and I needed God's compassion. The worldview of a God worshiper and the worldview of an idolater are, are, are totally different. 
And you and I live in a culture of idolatry. And it's hard to celebrate the sanctity of life when you live in an idolatrous world because only a God worshiper can truly understand the sanctity of human life. Again, quoting a Dr. Moore, or actually quoting a, a natural law theorist and Dr. Moore, we, he writes, It's difficult to explain the wrong of abortion to someone who thinks it's better for Johnny to have a trip to Disney World than a baby sister. You hear that? It's difficult to explain to someone why abortion is wrong when they're a person who believes that providing their child with a trip to Disney World is better than having a baby sister. It's difficult to explain the wrong of euthanasia to one who thinks he'll be more blessed learning to take than learning to sacrifice for a lady who needs mercy. The spirit of Roe preaches a gospel of personal autonomy. The church must respond with the only freedom that rescues fallen humanity from the tyranny of its own enslaving passions. It's absolutely right. You and I must confront a culture that doesn't see the value in worshiping God. And because it doesn't see the value in worshiping God, it exalts other values like autonomy and, and freedom and, and, and choice. As God worshipers, what we have the responsibility to do is say, no, no, no. Here's the value of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me proclaim to you the gospel. And then, as I proclaim to you the gospel, let me live out the gospel in the lives of the fatherless. 